Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And as you most likely know already, our beloved Sasha Shulgin died on June 2nd. News of his death, uh, surprisingly for many of us, was well reported in dozens and dozens of newspapers and on television and radio all around the world. This uh, world recognition of the man that many of us think to have been the greatest chemist to have lived during our lifetimes, well, that recognition is very heartwarming. It's the kind of notice that I think he would have modestly appreciated. And in the weeks and months to come, I'm sure we're going to be hearing and seeing many more tributes to the life of Sasha Shulgin and of the work that he and his wife Anne jointly pursued. We owe the two of them and their small cadre of explorers, uh, well, more than just a simple debt of gratitude, much more, as I'm sure future historians will eventually figure out. For my part, I thought that uh, maybe you'd like to hear a couple of things that I haven't played here in the salon before. And then I'll close with the talk by Sasha that actually changed the direction of my life. And uh, that is the talk that I played back in my podcast number 100. The uh, talk itself was given in 1983, and a transcript of it was given to me the first night that I used MDMA. In just a bit, you're going to hear it for yourself, and I hope you'll understand why it so impacted me. But first, just to let you know what a great person Sasha was, I'll recount my own first contact with him. Through a friend, I'd received a substance that was called Orchid Spectrum, and for what it's worth, I've never had anything that has come close to it from an overall perspective, but that's another story. The year was 1989, and I was living in Florida at the time sort of out at the end of the line and out of contact with my old friends in Dallas. So uh, just out of the blue, I sent a letter. Uh, this was before we were all using email. Remember those days? So I, uh, I sent a letter to Sasha that described the effects of the substance uh, and asked him if he knew what it might be. To be honest, I didn't really expect an answer, but answer me he did. In fact, I'm looking at his response right now, and uh, he apparently typed it himself, and it covers two single-spaced pages. It began, Thank you for your kind personal letter of a few days ago. Now, to begin with, I don't even answer email within a few days, and here was Sasha back on November 29, 1989, answering his snail mail in a few days. I still find this amazing. And just so as to not leave uh, the thread of the story hanging here, after several years of exchanging letters, we decided that the substance in question was either DOM or DOB. Uh, also, and uh, it is one of my prized possessions, Sasha sent me an endorsed and autographed copy of the Controlled Substances Act. It's, it's hard to believe that 25 years have passed since then, but, well, they have, and they've been very good years indeed. If I'm correct, uh, right about this very moment, as I'm recording this podcast, Sasha's family and close friends are scattering his ashes on the Pacific Ocean. And I'm told that an announcement will be made soon about a public memorial that will be held in the Bay Area. For my part, I really don't feel as if I can come up with my own words to describe what a giant of a man Alexander Sasha Shulgin was. So I'm going to continue following our format here in the salon and play a recording or two for you that I think you'll find informative and fun to hear. 
I'm going to begin with the audio portion of a short video and then follow that with a, another short interview of Sasha that Terence McKenna conducted. And we'll conclude with a talk by Sasha that changed my life. So the audio we're about to hear right now will give you a good overview of Sasha's work and the importance of his wife Anne in that work. I'm going to embed the video with the program notes for this podcast, uh, which you know you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And I urge you to surf on over there and watch the video because it'll convey so much more to you about Ann and Sasha that uh, audio alone can't do. The film was shot by Kyle Cameron and Connie Littlefield in 2002 and 2003. And at that time, I remember uh, talking to Myron Stolaroff quite a bit, and he was telling me what a great job he thought that Connie was doing. So uh, please be sure to watch it if you can. Now, we are going to hear the soundtrack from that video tribute that was first shown at a MAPS dinner honoring the Shulgans on April 17, 2010. In the video, you actually get to see the Shulgans at home, as well as uh, seeing the names of the people whose voices you are going to hear right now. And the first voice you'll hear is that of Rick Doblin, who uh, coincidentally was our guest speaker here in the salon last week. Sasha Shulgin did the early explorations of a vast amount of territory. I think it's a lot like Columbus. You know, Sasha discovered the continent, but he didn't actually draw the map in as precise a way as it could be done. That was left for later researchers. But by discovering the vast continent of all of these psychedelic drugs that he synthesized, he's done, like Columbus, an enormous contribution to science and to our knowledge. When I met Sasha, and he told me what he did, just he researched and published um, on new psychedelic drugs, I couldn't believe it. Um, I, I, was, I was absolutely dumbfounded that anyone could actually do something like that. And I wanted to know what he did and, and to maybe become part of his research group. Uh, which, of course, was not an unusual thing for people to, to want to do. Um, it, it, was, it was wonderful. So that when it came to um, the area of psychedelic drugs and visionary plants, uh, there was no way I, I wasn't going to be completely intrigued by, by it, uh, because these were after all, um, very ancient tools. I mean, we, I think the human race has been using them for at least 50,000 years. I mean, we have the evidence from 50,000 years ago. This is part of the human experience, is, is uh, visionary plants. Um, they're used different ways in, in every culture, but obviously they are means by which uh, the human being opens up his own psyche. I mean, they're, they're keys uh, to the insides of us. So, discovering a person who uh, uh, was just as fascinated as I was by this area, uh, this kind of exploration, was uh, just heaven on earth. It's just wonderful. It worked out beautifully because she and I have formed a team and we worked together as a, as a single 
uh, very often I end up finishing her sentences or she ends up finishing mine. Um, I don't think I could have formed a team of that tightness with uh, very many people. It, it worked out to be a beautiful relationship. Uh, and um, we are acting as one person, which is, we have different vocabularies, different directions of interest. She will elaborate on something that I not agree with at all. I will elaborate on something she will not agree with at all. But basically we're speaking the same language. And uh, I, I just couldn't visualize not, not being allied with her. Anne is my father's grounding. It allows him to have that light of fancy into the imagination and into the unknown. And she brings it back and... and corrects the typos and puts it into a, um, a dialogue. And they have a wonderful dialogue from that point of view. I think they work that well together because they work in completely separate ends of the house. And I think that's a metaphor for their writing. And in getting this information out in the way they have in this day and age, they've really gone against the societal norm, they've gone against the fear, they've gone against all of it and published and spoken out about their use and developing new things and um, so I think in the future they'll be known for the larger picture of what they've been doing which is exploring the mind and exploring the soul in a way that isn't done in, with anything else in any other way. I think Sasha's work is an enormous contribution. Uh, the, these substances, as I've come to uh, understand them and use them, are just really valuable tools. And I think our nation, I think the world, is desperate for the kind of understanding that you can gain with them. I think Anne and Sasha Sheldon have devoted their lives to, they call it higher consciousness, I'd like to call it something else, to the, the opening, to the big window that everybody can, who has the chance to can look out of and, and see the world as it really is and not be confused with all the stuff that's going on. And we're all, we're grateful, grateful to them, very grateful. We care about this kind of experience. We, we care very much about um, what it can do for people, uh, how it can uh, enrich your life. So uh, that very fact, the fact that we have uh, something that uh, uh, concerns both of us and that we both care about, uh, is also one of the things that, that can help hold a marriage together. So. Um, I think it, the psychedelic experiences have given both of us a great, a great deal. But there's no way to tell what would have happened with us. You can't <laughs> go through the same river twice. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. After hearing that, I think maybe you can now probably guess why I've been urging you to watch the video itself. 
because during all of those beautiful musical interludes, you'll see many images worth thousands of words. It's uh, truly a well-crafted piece. Now I'm going to play a relatively short piece that I've been tempted to play before, but I always thought that the sound quality made it too difficult to uh, hear in parts, uh, mainly, <laughs> mainly due to all of the birds that were singing so gaily as the uh, Terence and uh, Sasha walked through a cemetery. But uh, today seems like the perfect time to play this conversation. It's uh, one of the outtakes from Stephen Marshank's film that he made uh, of Terence McKenna in Prague. Uh, called Prognosis, and this piece actually takes place in a cemetery, as you'll hear, and uh, consists of an interview that Terence McKenna conducted with Sasha Shulgin back in 1993, a little over 20 years ago. Alexander Shulgin, Sasha to his friends, is nothing less than the godfather of psychopharmacology, an expert on the cyclicized phenylethylamines, that is, psychoactive compounds useful in the emotional recovery of traumatic events, Shulgin has given his life to the study of the pharmacology of the psychedelic experience. In Prague, he told me, greater frontiers lie ahead. The next lost continent to be explored by Alexander Shulgin, the psychoactive tryptamines. Sasha suggested that I join him for a stroll among the graves of the cemetery of the Jewish ghetto of Prague, Europe's oldest ghetto. There, walking among the stones, we reminisced and speculated about the history and the future of psychopharmacology. What do you make of your Russian colleagues here? I'm fascinated by what he's doing and I'm intrigued by his ability to get out what he is doing into the, into the West because the status of a physician in Russia is not what we have come to respect in the West. You're yeah. talking about Yevgeny Kripinsky. Yes. Mm -hmm. oh, I imagine you don't mm -hmm. view ketamine with... Well, how do you view ketamine? It's, a, um, it's an anesthetic and it's a dissociative thing. It puts me out of body. It's very dissociative. It puts me out of mind. Just you're away, and I, frankly, with a full bladder, like being here. And uh, you suddenly realize that someone has a full bladder, and at only one intellectual level you realize it's you. <laughs> yes. No, I, it's so seriously disassociated me that I felt it was a great victory when I finally realized that this was a drug. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I couldn't figure out what it was or who was even asking the question. They keep calling it vitamin K, which is a fascinating euphemism for allowing to have some semblance of a food additive for a dietary supplement. But well, I, I, I had the interesting pleasure of being back at a big company in the East uh, the day they had bought the rights to distribute ketamine. And I informed them, you do realize that ketamine is being made by Park Davis and shipped off to... Uh, Mexico is imported in gallon, but not gallon, but liter bottles, all with a percentage of preservative, and comes right back into California in the trunk of the car. And uh, they were shocked and did not know there was any abuse whatsoever. Never could have conceived of human abuse. Oh, about 20 years ago, there's a um, class of compounds called quinucleidines. And for about three or four years, I just noticed that there's no publishing in the Russian literature whatsoever on the area of quinucleidines. And then all of a sudden, the Russian literature started publishing. And then we went into a sort of a gap. 
And then Knuckian Densley, which is one of the most potent of the anticholinergics, was suddenly revealed that the Russians were working on it as a chemical warfare agent, and then we were working on it as a defense against their chemical warfare agent. Uh-huh. And it's actually, it's actually 10, 20 micrograms. 10, 20 micrograms? It makes you really wonky. It's like atropine. Delusion, confusion. Uh-huh. But they design these fantastic bombs that they can explode and send out millions of little hypodermic hits. And so they don't have to worry about wind blowing it downwind or upwind. So it's essentially a chemical cluster bomb. Cluster bomb, but with a little hypodermic needles. Yeah, elegant. <laughs> so that's probably in the inventory. It's already in the inventory. Uh-huh. Well, I, someone mentioned to me that you had expressed interest now that you felt you had sort of done the work you wanted to do with cyclicized phenylethylamines mm -hmm. and that you were going back to looking at tryptamine. Very much so. That's the other side of the coin. This is rich and unexplored areas of phenylethylamines were 20 years ago. So are you going to illuminate it for oh, us? Oh, absolutely. Uh... <laughs> I've already made the T-butyl, T-butyl methyl, isopropyl methyl is well known, but the secondary butyl methyl is not known. They're all active by smoking. Uh-huh. And what, are they, could you, in a blind test, pick one out from another, or are they sort of... I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I doubt it somehow. I think they're all going to be fast, impactful, and all very much like DMT. Duration-wise, or Duration -wise, presentation -wise. Uh, Probably, some, uh, perhaps a little bit more potent. A little bit more yeah, potent. The DMT is not that, that off-fired potent. It takes, you know, 10, 20, 50, no more, 50, 100 milligrams. 50 to yeah. 70. And some of these we're getting into maybe at 30... 20 and 30 milligrams, but not active enough. You have to get up to a certain degree of shrubbery on the night to get oral activity. And how many of these compounds do you imagine there are that are As simple? Casually, you can make uh, 30, 40, 50. Why do you suppose it is that this fast-acting, easily manufactured, spectacular hallucinogen is so rarely met in the underground. I don't know. I've heard that there is, it's there in some quantity. I heard about a seizure in Boston, I believe it was of ayahuasca, and they seized it on the basis that it contained DMT. Right, that was the Santo Daime oh, yes, people right, from right, Brazil. Right. But, you know, we live in a society where people jump out of airplanes mm -hmm. and hang by bungee cords mm -hmm. over bridges. And DMT, which is always described mm -hmm. as an easy synthesis, mm -hmm. is just not not there. It's, it violates <laughs> one of these economic, economic laws, Gresham laws. or Graham or somebody. <laughs> Something that I've always wanted to ask you, which is, unlike me, you seem remarkably resistant to what I call the implications. <laughs> I mean, how how can you just do these things over and over again and not be nutty as a fruitcake? So? <laughs> well, are I you? Mean, I think, are you? I think I, I relaxed <laughs> in the event. But unlike me, you don't feel the need to rave about that aspect of it. No, I'd rather quietly stay half in the closet and continue doing what I'm doing. But you do you've probably seen more uncharted internal landscape than half of mankind put together. I mean, that would not be an immodest claim. They're a little bit charted now. 
Well, yeah. a very little bit. Very little, okay. But the seeds are there to be used by anyone else. That's the reason for the, for the book, just to get it all recorded into a documented form. But I, it always puzzles me. I mean, I think Hoffman and Wasson and certainly to some degree Schultes, to some degree you, nobody want, everybody says, well, I'm just a humble botanist or I'm just a hard-working workbench chemist. Nobody wants to actually say this must be very, very important. We must because it's so uniquely beyond ordinary expectation. Yes, but the importance is going to take a long time to realize. But you can't build without the tools, and you have to have the tools, and these are the tools that allow the building to be done. I'm not a builder. I'm a toolmaker. And that's probably one of the reasons I have not described a lot of landscapes. Otherwise, you can do it. If we could compare it to uh, the invention of the telescope, probably within 50 years of the invention of the telescope, the major solar system new paradigms were put in place. This seems very elusive. It seems hard for us to go beyond simply saying it exists, it's really far out and then we sort of fall silent. Do you, what do you think about that? I think the silence is in part imposed upon us by a very unsympathetic authority body. And maybe it's just as well. Because that way a lot of work can be done and sort of recorded for posterity. And the time the pendulums swing, they will swing back. And the time will come when this, this work will be, uh, will be used, research will be done with these tools. Well, obviously, you believe in it strongly. What would you say to a critic who said, what, what's so great about this? Are you and your friends in any significant way different from the rest of humanity? No. And I don't see why it would be critical. I'm not offending him. I can see no way in which I'm offending him. I'm quietly doing my little alchemist thing at home. But you really must think that it it does make a difference. I think it does. I think it will. It will. I don't think it does now. So we really are cursed with being pioneers. Yeah. It's not so bad. <laughs> no. It's not so it, bad. It, it, has, it has a nice... nice I mean, they'll hang your picture in the main hall years hence and say, these were giants. <laughs> I would rather have my picture hanging in the main hall than me hanging in the main hall. <laughs> Well, oh. some people manage both, well, that, that's <laughs> and you, you yeah. may end up that way, too. Oh, well, it's a short, happy life. It's kind of neat. Well, but this is your territory, too. What do you feel? Do you feel that that's, that's a fair... I, I think that I have always, from the very first psychedelic experience, had the uncanny intuition that, yes, this has been around for 50,000 years, but... It's somehow going to be critically important in our lifetime that we will need it for something, maybe just to think our way out of the mess that we're getting into. We, well, okay. But you, that if it's needed, we have it. Yes. That's, that's the beauty. The, the tool is there for the time when the need is obvious. And this may be, it may be our lifetime. So essentially what you're doing is you're placing tools on the shelf screwdrivers mm -hmm. for screws that haven't been haven't invented been made, exactly yet. That. Except it's a good tool. 
its use will depend upon someone who has that particular view of, of me. Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. Where do you hope to be in ten years or so with all of this? Probably ever... starting on a third book. <laughs> do you think? I know you're working on a book about legalization That's and not actually. I'm working with a group uh, who's more or less uh, funded to make arguments that would be raised to address arguments to be raised in the legalization process. What would be the answer of how drugs would be legalized? How would they be made available? Should it be an open supermarket? Should it be under some sort of governmental control? And it's a research, uh, more than that, a policy group studies setting up for that. I think it's futile in the, in the present state. In terms of practical impact. I don't think anyone's going to seriously entertain legalization. So it's a, it's a, it's, it may be a fuel process, but it's a fun process. Because in the process you begin evaluating your own relationship with drug law, drug regulation control. If you were in charge of it, how do you see it happening? I mean, are there drugs you would keep legal, or do you think it should be... What I would do if I were running, I would keep certain laws that protect people of innocence. I would have absolutely no drug with children who are of too young an age. God knows what they so are. Maybe 16, 18, alcohol. 21. Maybe alcohol monitor. Right. Uh, absolutely unallowed giving drugs to anyone without their consent. Uh, informed consent. Knowledge, education. I would make absolutely available at all levels of uh, propaganda restriction information that is factual about drugs. Then I'd open the drugstore. And you people, would be over you? Maybe. But I think that would very quickly dampen itself out to maybe about what we have now. But you will remove the criminality, remove the violence, remove the entire uh, social disruptiveness that these drug laws have caused. Would you encourage the government to see uh, these drugs as a vehicle for gaining tax revenue, or do you think the government should stay off that? Probably, uh, hmm. Probably some tax revenue would be valid, as with other drugs of abuse, other things of abuse. Similarly to Similarly, al alcohol and tobacco. It's a good model, and perhaps it's a valid one. Well, that's pretty much what I suggested in my book, but I agree with you that I, it's easy to sit down and come up with a fine plan, mm -hmm. overcoming the political hurdles of an too American... Many people have too much to benefit on the laws being what they are, and even becoming more intense. And uh, you, until, until you change that motivation, that, that reward... Yes, well, the most cynical and the most naive people in America are keeping the drug problem going. The most cynical by dealing and importing drugs, and the most naive through the kind of Christian terror of... Look, look uh, at the monstrous industries that have been built up with it. The drug urine screening, shameful. Right. But they're multi-billion dollar things. This kit, that DCMS, this implementation, these people who make little wax urine bottles. It's, it's, it's becoming, there's no justification for urine screening at any time of anyone under any circumstance on a random basis. Well, and, and the notion that in a democratic society people would get into that kind of thing is incredible, I think. It's completely contrary to the principles of that society. The assumption of innocence, we blew it because it's not in the Constitution. Right. It should have been in it, but it wasn't. Right. But taking a urine sample on a random basis is an assumption of guilt. Well, and, but what is in the Bill of Rights is life, liberty, and the pursuit no, of happiness. Declaration of, Declaration of Independence. But that could be used as a sufficient part, basis it's, it's a for... It's a self-image. Uh, we should maintain it as such.
Yeah, well, the first thing that goes when society uh, hits the wall is democracy. And while I'm tempted to pick up on Terence's last remark, this, uh, well, this isn't the right time to take that tack. As the uh, final segment in this tribute to Sasha Shulgin, I'm going to play a recording of the talk that he gave at the Psychedelics and Spirituality Conference that was held in Santa Barbara, California in 1983. When I first played this talk in my podcast number 100, I told some stories about the conference, uh, the setting and the speakers, so I'm not going to repeat that here. But just briefly, I want to again tell you how this talk changed my life. If you've heard my story in Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate, you heard me mention the fact that back in the early days when MDMA first hit the streets in Dallas, there was practically no information about it or any other psychedelic substances, at least not down on the street level in Dallas. But uh, there was one document that was significant. It was uh, actually a mimeograph copy, if you can remember what those were. And that document was the text of the speech that you and I are about to listen to. My first exposure to this information was uh, in written form, and I read it the morning after my first experience with MDMA. And if you've ever been there, uh, especially that first time, well, you can imagine how forcefully this information took hold in my mind. I had uh, just had one of the most ecstatic experiences of my life, and here was a scientist who was confirming the thoughts that had already begun racing through my mind. And if you've been there, uh, I don't have to tell you what I mean. So just sit back and pretend that you're just now coming down from your very first MDMA experience and see if Sasha isn't talking directly to you. There was a meeting last year when uh, Dr. Hoffman came and his opening sentence was, you expected the shame and you're going to get a chemist. <laughs> when I actually, when I was first asked by Dr. Uh, Robert McC Gordon McCutcheon to come here tonight and talk about whatever I wanted to do. My first impression, as long as uh, I allowed my first impression, was to decline. I had, uh, after all, I am a student of chemistry and of pharmacology and not really a student of philosophy and religion. And I felt I had probably contributed as much as I could last year when I took chalk to blackboard and drew hexagons and tryptamine rings and gave my impression of what on a molecule caused it to do what. Uh, but my wife intervened. Why not tell them just why you do what you do? Well, it got me launched into an interesting question. I never had actually spoken to myself and said, you know, why do you do what you do? The flippant answer is always at hand. Well, one does it because it's there to be done. The Mount Everest routine. I climb the mountain because it's there to be climbed. But that is, of course, not the reason I do the research I do. Whenever this question would come up in a seminar or during a panel discussion, I place special emphasis on the word psychotomimetic. The word has been used quite a bit today. A term that is usually used by the scientific community uh, when they wish to speak about the psychedelic drugs. The term psychedelic does not find a good audience in uh, the psychiatric or in the chemical or in the medical literature. It carries a meta-message of drug use, drug encouragement, drug uh, proselytizing. And as a, as a, as a result, the, the, the word is not often encountered. In its origin, as was pointed out, it comes from psychoto, meaning in essence psychosis, and mimesis, meaning the imitation of. And this indeed is the term that very early in the, in the work in this area, uh, they had been given these materials because they had uh, been cast in the role of causing 
uh, syndrome, causing symptoms that would reflect the, uh, the character of mental illness. And it's felt by studying the, the effects of these materials in normal subjects, you might be able to glean some insight as to the mechanisms or the, at least the descriptions and, and um, definitions of this syndrome when seen in people who are spontaneously ill. The, um, this explanation, the search for new psychotomimetics for materials that would be more exacting in definition of psychosis, is completely logical in that all the hallucinogenic, not all, but most of the hallucinogenics, the um, psychedelics that are known, can be classified into materials that are indoles, and there are many in this area, the tryptamines, the more convoluted uh, carbolines, LSD as an ergot-type indole, or it can be classified as phenethylamines, and there are perhaps some three or four score that are in this classification, the analogs of mescaline, a compound that's been mentioned several times, or the substitution uh, variants of mescaline, or the alpha-methyl compounds that have given rise to the materials that are lumped chemically together as the amphetamines. And uh, there are two principal neurotransmitters in the brain. One is an indole, and this is serotonin. One is a phenethylamine, namely dopamine. And it's very desirable from the point of the neurochemist to find pigeonholes that can classify things. Here we have a group of psychedelics that are all indoles, and we have a neurotransmitter that's indolic, serotonin. Here's a group that are all phenethylamines, and we have a neurotransmitter that's a phenethylamine. All we have to do is understand why all of these work here and all of those work there, and we shall now know how the neurotransmitters work in the brain. And once we know that, we'll be able to cure mental illness. Well, it's um, an appealing, and it has not been a particularly rewarding classification. And the explanation, beside being logical, is, is quite safe, because it's an unthreatening explanation. It's easily accepted by the academic and the administrative community. But the explanation is still not the explanation of why I do what I do. My work is indeed dedicated to the development of tools, but tools for quite a different purpose. And here is where I want to get quite away from, from chemistry and into some of my own personal thoughts. I'd like to lay a little background to establish a framework for these tools, and in part to define them, and in part to give emphasis to an urgency that I really feel associated with them. First, I am a very firm believer in the reality of a balance in all aspects of the human theater. When there seems to be a development of move that away, somehow, very shortly, or almost in concert, there is a move this away that keeps things in some delicate balance. If there must be a dichotomization of concepts into good and evil, then all good seems to contain its unexpressed evil, and all evil is unexpressed good. Within the human mind, there coexists the eros, the life-loving, the self-perpetrating force, with the thanatos, the self-destructive death wish. Both are present in each of us, but are usually separated by a very difficult wall, a very difficult to penetrate wall, the unconscious. One definition of the tools I seek is that I, they may allow words of a vocabulary, a vocabulary which might allow each human being to, to more consciously and more clearly communicate with the interior of his own mind and psyche. This may be called a vocabulary of awareness. A person who becomes increasingly aware of, and so begins to acknowledge, the existence of the two opposite contributors to his motives and decisions may begin to make choices which are knowledgeable. And the learning process that follows such choices is the path that leads to wisdom. 
But just as there is a balance within the mind that needs uh, establishment, there is an interesting record of balances of the same sort in society. Let's look for a few minutes at some of the coincidences that have kept our human race in, in a rather precarious balance. Throughout the early centuries of the current millennium, they were carried out some of the most viciously inhuman wars that were known to man, all in the name of the forces of religion and the horrors of the Inquisition with its lethal intolerance of heresy. And yet it was during these, these dark years that the structure of alchemy was established. Not to change base metals into noble ones, as is often thought, but to acquire knowledge through the study of matter. The work of the alchemists extended up to the Age of Enlightenment with the urges of rationalism and of skepticism. And it was always directed toward the learning process. The reward of alchemistic effort has been simply stated as the effort to achieve the transmutation of base metals into gold. But as Ralph pointed out just a bit ago, this is not the actual reward. The value was the doing and the redoing and the redoing of the process of distillation, of sublimation, of condensation, of precipitation. It was a continual, ever more exact effort to understand these processes that from the learning of the process, one would be able to find a unity between the physical and the spiritual world. It was the doing and the redoing itself that was, was the reward. In the last hundred years or so, this learning process has evolved into what we call science. However, there has been a subtle shift in the goal from the process, of the process itself to the results of the process. In this age of science, it is only the end result, the gold, that really matters. It is not the act of achieving, but the achievement itself that brings one the acknowledgement of his peers, that brings recognition from the outside world, that results in the wealth, in wealth and in influence and in power. And these end achievements, these results, show the same dichotomy of directions which was so evident from the previous centuries. For years, there had been no separation of values. Neither direction had taken the colors of good or for evil. But still, there were incredible coincidences of timing. For example, in 1895, Con Wilhelm Conrad von Lenken observed that when electricity was applied to an evacuated tube containing certain gases, a nearby plate covered with barium platinocyanide emitted a visible glow. And the next year, in 1896, Antoine-Henri Becquerel found that these same metal-producing emanations were being emitted from uranium. Radioactivity had been discovered. But it was just in the following year, at 11.45 a.m. on the 23rd of November of 1897, that Arthur Hefter consumed an alkaloid that he had isolated from the peyote, dumpling cactus, brought to the Western world by the irrepressible pharmacologist Dewey Levine. As Hefter wrote in his notes, and this is a quotation following 150 milligrams of mescaline, from time to time dots with the most brilliant colors floated across the field of vision. Later on, landscapes, halls, Architectural scenes also appeared. Mescaline had also been discovered. During the 1920s and 1930s, both worlds, that of the physical sciences involving radiation and that of the psychopharmacological sciences involving psychotropic materials, continued to develop without any clear sense of polarity, without the mine is good and yours is evil duality that was soon to come. Radioactivity and radiation were becoming the mainstays of medicine. X-ray photography was invaluable in diagnosis, and radium therapy was broadly used in treatment. Controlled and localized radiation could destroy malignant tissue while sparing the host. 
and in the area of psychology, there were parallel developments. The theories of Freud and Jung were being developed into increasingly useful clinical tools and approaches to mental illness. And the basis of experimental psychology was laid in the pioneering studies of Pavlov. Another coincidence in timing, which in retrospect started a dividing of science onto separate paths, occurred during World War II. In the late 1942, Enrico Fermi and several other scientists at the University of Chicago demonstrated for the first time ever that nuclear fission could be achieved and could be controlled by man. The age of unlimited power and freedom from dependency upon our dwindling fossil reserves had begun. Just the next year, at 4.20 p.m. on the 19th of April, Albert Hoffman consumed a major amount of a compound which he had first synthesized some five years earlier. As Hoffman subsequently reported, as a quotation following 250 micrograms, after the crisis of confusion and despair, I began to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me, alternating, variegated, opening and closing themselves in circles and spirals. LSD had also been discovered. But then, still, and up until the last decade, it was the rich promise of the nuclear age, first with the power and potential of fission, and later with the virtually limitless potential of fusion energy that carried the banner and the hopes of man. And the area of the hallucinogenics was categorized as negative, psycho psychosis imitating, psychotomimetic. It was not until someone in the 1970s, sometime in the 1970s, that a strange and a fascinating and a rather frightening reversal of roles had take, take, took place. The knowledge of nuclear fission and fusion took on a death-loving aspect, with country after country joining the fraternity of those skilled in the capacity for the eradication of the human experiment. And to have such power leads to the threat to use such power, which in time will actually lead to its use. But, as I said earlier, when one thing develops, there seems to spring forth a balancing, a compensatory counterpart. This balance can be realized with the psychedelic drugs. What had been simply tools for the study of psychosis, at best, or for escapist self-gratification, at worst, suddenly assumed the character of tools of enlightenment and of some form of transcendental communication. If man's alter ego, ego his thanatos, had been entrusted with the imperpetual knowledge of how he can completely destroy himself and this extraordinary experiment, then some development will, must occur at the eros side of his psyche that will and must afford the learning of how to live with his perpetual knowledge. It is a communication between these two sides of the mind that requires an extraordinary vocabulary. Where do these words come from, the words of this vocabulary? All depend upon an intimate insight into the working of the human mind, but this can be approached in many ways. The study of religion, of meditation, of self-yielding, provides a peace, but in my mind also tends toward a retreat and hence a capitulation. The efforts of amalgamation, to amalgamate the two sides of the mind as seen in the Tao of Physics and the rich findings of parallelisms between the Eastern and Western philosophies may eventually explain all and allow some unification for the human purpose. But I feel, along with many others, that the efforts being invested in the technology of destruction does not allow sufficient time. It is possibly only with the psychedelic drugs 
that words of vocabulary can be established which might tunnel through the subconscious between the conflicting aspects of the mind and psyche. It is here that I feel my skill lies. And this is exactly why I do what I do. Where do we stand as of today? In the last handful of years, the forces of government and nationalism have amassed an unprecedented arsenal of destructive power. The power is in the current arsenals of the world, if restructured into Hiroshima-strength weapons, to detonate one bomb every minute, on the minute, for the next two years. And the rationalization, the rationalized need to do so is becoming manifest at a frightening pace. But in the last handful of years, a number of tools of communication have increased at a like rate. There are currently nearly 200 psychedelic drugs known and described, some touching at one, some at another, of the fibers that unify our minds. By learning each of their structures of sensory communication in turn, we might find a form of communication that would disarm our destructive compulsion. And indeed, what form of tools are now available to us? Some of the tools that are available, or rather that have been available, are the widely publicized drugs of psychopharmacology, such as mescaline, psilocybin, DOM, LSD. These drugs played a role in defining the transition between drugs as entertainment, escape, turn on, and drugs as instructive vehicles for learning, enlightenment, and insight, but at quite a price. They had a high profile at the time that the scheduled drug laws were written, and thus were made illegal and are not available. However, in their place, there are now many, many other materials, some more limited in their instructive capacity, and some perhaps even richer. And for everyone today, there will be 10 tomorrow. Let me describe a small sampling of the recently born materials a bit, in, a bit more in detail. These are examples with some quotations in some instances of experiments in which there have been actually definitions of some aspect of sensory teasing apart of the complex sensorum attack and uh, uh, effects that these materials can have. DIPT is an abbreviation of NN-diisopropyltryptamine, a drug unique among the psychedelics in that it expresses a distortion in, or to an extent, a synthesis with the process of auditory integrity. It is perhaps one of the less available senses to be teased apart for special study. Many of the close relatives, as you well know, deal with the, audit, with the visual process and in some way will change or, or synthesize or modify the visual integrity, but a rather interesting distinction between the drug-induced psychosis and endogenous schizophrenia is that very often in the latter, the uh, primary sensory uh, uh, character that is affected is the, is the auditory uh, influence. A quotation following 20 milligrams of DIPT. The telephone sounds partly underwater. Here are signs of a pitch change on radio. The absolute pitch down a major third. Chord on the piano sounds out of tune, quite flat. Music terrible, unlistenable. The other senses seemed in no way affected. If I were deaf, I would have thought this an inactive drug. Several hours after ingestion of the material, this note, hearing normal, piano back in tune. <laughs> MDMA, or MDA, is abbreviation for 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine. It's a tool of communication that has shown, in recent years, an extraordinary utility in opening communication between individuals. This has promoted its use in psychotherapy, 
but has given promise as well as a vehicle for interpersonal, intrapersonal communication. This particular drug has been used clinically in many applications, and these today in a no, probably number in the thousands, and it has commanded a remarkably good record of positive results. A quotation following 120 milligrams. We kept up a lively conversation covering many interesting aspects of our various family relationships. The conversation was use unusually insightful and free of defensiveness. And following a 40 milligram supplement at the two hour point, Gene glowed with energy, became very beautiful. We talked freely and openly. Every bush and plant looks utterly alive. I am entranced by, the lar by a large rock. As I look at its surface, I see the surface of a planet with mountains and valleys. Little crystals of mica are like jewels. Another material, 2CB, is the abbreviation for 2,5-dimethoxy-4-bromophenethylamine, a tool and a word of vocabulary which ties the mental process directly and constructively into the physical soma. The analgesic effects experienced with many, if not most, of the psychedelic drugs are not present with 2CB. On the contrary, there is an increased body awareness of every kind, including skin sensitivity, heightened responsiveness to smells, tastes, to sexual stimulation. One experiences increased consciousness of physical health and energy, or, on the other hand, sharpened awareness of any body imbalance or discomfort. 2CB allows rich visual imagery and intense eyes-closed fantasy without cluttering up of the mental field with too many elaborations. A quotation following 20 milligrams. Along with the awareness of the body and the ability to deeply enjoy the fact that one is a physical as well as a spiritual being, the experience of 2CB allows exploration as far as one needs to go. There is at all times full connection with all parts of oneself, the emotional and the intellectual, the intuitive and the instinctual. It is a superb tool for learning and for growth. And 2CB allows one to recover baseline within six to eight hours using a maximum dosage of 25 milligrams, usually lower in the area of 18 to 20. Another drug mentioned earlier, ketamine, is abbreviation for 2-orthochlorophenyl-2-methylaminocyclohexanone, the antithesis of 2CB, in that it effectively separates the mind and the body. This allows the mind a separate and constructive state apart from the physical groundings of the body, although the primary clinical application of ketamine is as a dissociative anesthetic, an increasingly important direction of study is now being directed to the psychological loosening that it allows. MAL and CPM are abbreviations of the compounds that are fascinating analogs of mescaline, namely 4-methyl-3,5-dimethoxyphenethylamine and 4-cyclopropylmethyl-3,5-dimethoxyphenethylamine, two compounds that activate opposite sides of the sensorium, the former provokes an intense visual distortion at the retinal level with consequential bizarre interpretations. The latter displays its effectiveness in the fantasy counterpart, seen only with the eyes closed. Following 65 milligrams of MAL, a quotation, within two hours, intense effect, beautiful, diuretic, good connections between parts of myself, continual fantasy and imagery, lovely experience of the erotic with husband, Around 12 hours, excellent solid sleep with clear, balanced dreams. Following 70 milligrams of CPM, at two hours, strong effect, but no visual. Wonderful locking into music. Deep loving, erotic, very good. With eyes closed, intense, colorful fantasy, much like LSD at times. No sleep before 18 hours.
Lest anyone should have the impression, by the way, that research in this area leads always to God and to insight and to deeper experiences in loving, let me mention an example of a compound called 4-TASB, which is 4-thioethyl-3-ethoxy-5-methoxyphenethylamine, following a 100 milligram exposure. At about two hours, pleasant and positive, peaceful feelings, very good humored. Later, sleep impossible until early morning, and then only about two hours. All next day could not rest or sleep. Feeling of nerve endings raw and active, anxiety over heartbeat, frightening effects on nervous system, depression, back of neck sore from tension. My first experience of being able to detect what felt like continual electrical impulses between nerve endings. Had the impression that if I allowed the wrong sequence of images to flow in my mind, I might experience some sort of convulsion, or might at least a kind or at least a kind of mental shock or shorting out. When I tried to sleep, eyes closed, fantasies became intensely negative and threatening. I could not smooth out the nervous system. Felt very vulnerable. Do not repeat. <laughs> Alpha-ODMS is abbreviation of 5-methoxy-alpha-methyltryptamine, an analog of a neurotransmitter serotonin that has been tailored chemically to allow it to enter into the CNS, into the brain. It is a very potent indole. A psychedelic that touches closely on those areas involved with primal energies. Several researchers experienced dreams of catastrophic events after exploring this material. One researcher, however, had a dream which involved as a complete science fiction scenario. He found it absolutely enjoyable and is still thinking of writing it up and sending it into a publisher. <laughs> These are only about a half a dozen or so of many scores of fascinating compounds that are now available for the study of this developing vocabulary. This is where we are at the moment. Some materials show incredible promise, and some suggest caution. But what might we expect to emerge in the future? Let's look at the past history of other areas of psychotropic chemistry. A few decade, decades ago, it was marveled at that drugs such as the opiates, including morphine and heroin, meperidine, could have such an exacting influence on the brain's integrity. Then it became known that there were natural factors in the brain that had these actions, and that there were specific sites in the brain that were pre-designed to respond to them. There were the encephalins and their fragmented portions known as the endorphins, which were derived from the cephalic process and related to morphine. These met a person's need for the suppression of pain. Perhaps there are enkidelics from the psychedelics and specific enescalins from mescaline yet to be discovered that might relate to these communicative factors, which might be the natural connect, uh, which might be connected and eventually uh, related to the natural receptor sites in the brain for transcendental communication. Their structures may someday be known. Their functions may someday be understood. There are a multitude of tenuous threads that tie together the fragile structure of the human spirit. The life-giving with the death-demanding side, the exalted voice with the mundane, the strongly centered self with the drive toward dispersion and loss of center. These all coexist in all of us, but there is an essential blockade between these inner worlds which I truly feel can be penetrated only with the words and the tools and the understanding that may be most easily obtained through the area of psychedelic experiences. William Blake said in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, man has no body distinct from his soul, for that called body is a portion of soul, discerned by the five senses. The chief inlets of soul in this age, energy is the only life and is from the body, and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Energy is eternal delight. 
These are responses to a heartfelt need for some vocabulary to allow the establishment of a dialogue that might diffuse the accelerating mad moves toward extinction. My personal philosophy might well be lifted directly from Blake. I must create a system or be slaved by another man's. I may be wrong, but I must do what I'm doing. And I will do what I can as fast as I can. And for the next 30 years, he continued to do all that he could and as fast as he could safely do it. In some ways, the older you get, the easier it is to deal with the deaths of those that are your age and those who are even older. Having already lost everyone in my own family that I grew up with and now watching those uh, almost forgotten high school and college classmates of mine die, well, news of yet another death in our extended family seems less troubling each time they occur. But after hearing the news of Sasha's death, even though it has long been anticipated and uh, even though I knew that it was imminent, the news hit hard nonetheless. Uh, it was as if for the past 30 years I've been in the middle of a huge rock concert, but suddenly the music ended. The lights came up and in the silence, uh, now we're all looking around and wondering... Well, what next? And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Sail on, dear Sasha. Sail on. <laughs>